So it's very difficult now for a company the size of Sabal to really get beautiful, excellent stuff like that. And we found that over time now, you don't hand that napkin anymore. You do detailed specifications, you teach them the product, you take them through it, and you might get 75% of what you asked for, and then you got to iterate, iterate. Hey, Matt. Welcome to the Get In The Mode podcast. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, Matt, for the benefit of our uh, listeners or viewers at YouTube, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe start with the company, Sabal. We'd love to hear. Yeah, pleasure. My name is Matthew Storr. I head up all the information technology and marketing for Sabal Capital Partners. Uh, Sabal Capital Partners was formed in 2009, originally as distressed debt funding and exit solution, ultimately growing into a term lending. So we lend money for commercial real estate assets in multiple asset classes, whether it be multifamily, office, hospitality, retail, industrial. And we do that for both agency and non-agency products, um, agency being Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And then non-agency, we have our own commercial mortgage-backed securities products that we uh, lend money for. Great. How long have you been with uh, Sabal as of today? Just over seven years now. Okay. So it's been, been a good run. Uh, I'm curious, looking back when you joined them, what were some of the initial challenges you faced as a CTO? Yeah, so joining and having some background in the real estate industry and in different areas, the financial side of lending was very similar in that there wasn't a lot of automation. You know, there's a lot of disparate systems that did different pieces of the puzzle, I guess is probably the best way to say it. But there was still a lot of paper processes, a lot of manual, look up information, find information, get it together. And there, you know, there was some emerging tech coming out to kind of start, like I said, managing portions of the business process, but nothing that was end to end. So the challenge for me coming in was the business was not only transitioning from a distressed debt business from that market that was improving and, you know, and Sabal had done a great job under Pat Jackson, who founded it in disposing of that distressed debt. So they were buying portfolios from the FDIC and other banks and then working those assets out, either improving operations for the borrower so they could get back to being in the black or selling off assets if that's what the borrowers wanted to do, you know, the owners. So they had some understanding of technology and such, but when they were moving into the lending business, we were forming an entirely new business. And again, pieces of technology out there, they may do customer relationship, or they may do some of the mortgage servicing, or they may do document management, but there was nothing that really managed the process end to end. So coming into Sabal and helping them form essentially a new business line, and then automating those processes through technology was a significant challenge at the time. And that's what I came on to do. Yeah. And automation, it's interesting you say that uh, obviously paper-based, then you want to automate. I'm curious, where does one start? Like what were some ideas on prioritizing automation could be in any department within the company? So where did you start and what was your plan on strategy on, hey, I want to start here. This is, yeah, I'm curious to hear. 
Yeah, so it was interesting when I joined, you know, Pat Jackson and I met up and had some discussions and he ended up hiring me for a short tenure as, as a consultant just to kind of give him some ideas of what could be done. You know, originally he had, again, I mentioned he he was definitely technology oriented and understood the power of technology, but he originally thought of something more like a portal to help automate the borrower experience with our company, which made sense. And when I came in, I thought that was a great idea. But again, having come in and then analyzed the business and understanding the market and where Sabal was coming in to start, you you're right. It's kind of like, where do you start all the time in companies? And a lot of companies, right, if, if you're doing document management, you start in accounts payable, right? Because it's a very set document, very set process. You can really have some wins there. But coming into Saval, starting an entire new lending business and then looking at the market, they had a document management solution in there at the time that was decent and worked well, but it wasn't part of the process. So both good and bad, since they were forming a new business line in the lending business, it was kind of a blank slate. So the bad news was everything had to be done. And so where do you start? The good news was everything had to be done. So there was no preconceived notion of things you had to fit into the model. So it was very easy for me to say, okay, well, why don't we map out the business process from beginning to end? And so what's the beginning? How do loans get in the door? So of course, when I started looking and they launched the business right away, even before I joined, it was kind of like, hey, we're going to do everything in Excel. So we have all these deals in Excel. We're kind of tracking them through. And then, of course, each person had their own Excel. And then you had 15 different Excel sheets trying to figure out where the deals were in the process. So we started right there at the beginning. So my team and I came in and we mapped out from the day a loan comes in the door to the day a loan either refinances or gets paid off. What does that entire process look like? And we mapped it all out. And then we started at the beginning and just kept automating through and adding the platform across. And so that was the presentation I gave the management team and the board when I came on board and they loved it. And that's ultimately when I joined the company. Got it. Now, what has been the value of this entire automation? We talked a little bit about like how you guys were able to scale. Talk to us about the benefit that you were able to articulate to your board and your leadership team. Yeah, so obviously looking at an entire platform and automating, you're never done audit. I think your audience knows that the technology continues to advance and you have to stay ahead and you got to keep chasing it and you're always looking at the business process. And I learned a long time ago that focus on the business, not the technology. So I've learned to really stay focused on that business process and the value. So it was pretty easy to show them how even if something as simple as trying to track pipeline through the different stages and know exactly where everything is to demonstrate the value of having that information at your fingertips. But as we started to launch the program, and I always, in my kind of plans, always do some things right that are short term that you can really show wins right away while you build the longer term pieces in the background. So they're seeing benefit all the way through the process. It's not like the old waterfall days where you kind of designed everything out and then you built it end to end. And then by the time you deliver it, it's out of date because you took so long. So we kind of show value all the way through the platform, whether it be some of the pipeline management or some of the process automation. One of the things that Sabal was doing that was different than a lot of the market is we were considering ourselves a small balance lender. So you have a lot of parties out there lending spending $100 million, $300 million on giant office buildings. And I've worked in that in the past. We have lots of people and you've got lots of time and you can spend the money doing that. So ball with small balance lending. So our average loan size was, was like two and a half to $3 million. You got to fund a lot of loans through the process to make that work. But you have to have the same quality control on your credit decisioning and your process and your borrower review and your asset review that you would on a $100 million building. So the automation of the product 
was really key to setting up a machine, if you will, to make sure that we followed all the things that we need to do. We checked all the boxes. We had the right credit decisioning. And so that's why that platform was so important to do that with, honestly. Yeah. And tell us, did you guys buy this platform and customize? Walk us through the process of this platform creation and automation itself. Yeah. So initially you're right on. I mean, we, the ball had purchased some software to help part of the process right before I came on the, on board. And um, I mentioned they had a document management system and they did out of a customer relationship system. So at the beginning to accelerate building the platform, we did take several of those pieces and, and tried to integrate them together and make them work. They certainly didn't fill all the needs. So for example, in the industry still today, Excel is largely used as an underwriting tool. All the credit decisioning and financials and everything are, were loaded into Excel. So we started to integrate that, those kind of pieces, but the challenge we started having was you're dependent on a vendor to make changes in an industry that was historically, as I mentioned, a little bit slow. Real estate is known as been slow adopter, although now they're, they're much quicker, but we were moving into the FinTech world at the time, right? So integrating those platforms and waiting for the vendors to make the changes we needed to really make that solid machine process we were talking about was just taking way too long. So we have used products like Microsoft CRM, Dynamics CRM to help automate. It doesn't necessarily make sense to build a CRM platform that they invest billions in every year. So we've kind of just adopted some of that. But as we kind of put the pieces together, we started filling in the holes where they weren't and then expanding the platform into those areas and ultimately taking out those partners that were not responsive to the needs of the business and the time frame that we needed them to be in. And in fairness to those partners, right, they had a large customer base that may not be focused on small balance lending or may not be focused specifically on us. You can't really blame the vendors, right? They, they're doing the best they can. But for how fast Sabal wanted to move and building a new business and being innovative in the way we did it, we became somewhat of a startup, a technology startup operating within the business, building a platform that allowed this innovation to occur. And so we moved very rapidly through that. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that obviously these vendors and partners, they're moving up market. So they're going after bigger companies. And sometimes it, it you find their product roadmap at odds with what you're trying to do. As you said, Sabal being kind of like a smaller loan lender compared to the others. What are some considerations that technology leaders like yourself should be looking at when they are thinking about buying off the shelf versus, hey, should I build our own within our team, utilizing some teams? What are your recommendations? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a big one. And I'm sure your audience would love to argue with me for hours on it. <laughs> it's kind of like Ford versus Chevy or, <laughs> right. But the reality is, look, the number one concern, and I've had a lot of business partners and, and uh, relationships over the years come to me and say, hey, you built this great thing. We want to build stuff. And I always have to caution them to build internally is a huge commitment. And we went through it with Sabal. Um, after we built the platform, we were approached many times for people to, to license it. And we went through some deep thought of whether we should spin that off as a technology company and license the software and really take another fork to our journey in selling software. And we kept coming back to, hey, we're a real estate company. We want innovative software to power the real estate company, but getting into tech sales and that kind of thing is a completely different business line for us. So, But it's a commitment, right? You have to be commitment in hiring the resources and managing resources and having the right staff and then having visionaries that can kind of be ahead of the game and understand the business and people that can work with the business. And 
let's face it, change management is the number one challenge. But you weigh that against off the shelf, which again, as we talked about, many of those products are vertical today. Take document management. Of course, they're focused 100% on document management. They're outstanding at it, and that's what they do. So they don't always expand horizontally into the different pieces of the business that you need to do. So for example, even recently when we did a survey on some of the emerging companies trying to do similar stuff that we're doing, we'd say, okay, do you OCR documents into a machine readable form to enter in a database? And they'd say, yes. Okay, well, do you do this type of document? Yes. Do you do this and this and this? Well, no. So those are all document types and stuff that we need that are critical to our operation that they may not have gotten to because they don't have the customer base to do it. And I mentioned that real estate's always been a little behind. And it's only in probably the last couple of years that you've really seen an explosion of tech companies in the commercial real estate business trying to really enter that market because it's been a tough market to enter, both from a cost and a use and getting them to adopt that technology. So that build versus buy goes back to a lot of things you say. You can build it, which comes with its challenges, or you can buy it, and then you have to integrate these vertical market packages. So you might have the best document management, but here's another example. One of the companies we talked to, we showed, we ultimately built our own document management platform as well, and people were kind of surprised, but one of the companies that had a very very, very prominent document management company came to us and said, we like yours better. And even I was like, okay, but they spend billions on that product. And they're like, yes, but yours does exactly what we need it to do, not all the other stuff they put in. So those document managers put in a ton of stuff and we all know it. You, the, the key for technology professionals today is to buy a product where it's cost feasible, but you're not buying a bunch of features you're never going to use. That's always been for years and years. Like you buy these million dollar packages and then you use 30% of them. So you really got to get your maximized use out of them. So it just becomes, one is technology availability. Obviously, if, if the technology you need is available out there and it works great, obviously let somebody else manage that process for you. It's not your core business. If you want your business to be more innovative and are ahead of that market, then obviously build makes sense. But there will be a convergence of those two thought processes as the market matures. So even in our case, I think that these companies that are emerging now and getting funding rounds at 10 to $50 million at a pop, maybe even more, they're accelerating. And as they accelerate, then you have to start making decisions of, does it make sense to keep investing in your platform or go back out and buy? So at the time, it was easy for us because it didn't exist. It made it a lot easier to do that. But I've done that in my career in several different industries and several different products where we've decided to innovate internally versus buy the product that may or may not exist. Yeah, interesting. You make a good point about that opening some opportunities for you guys to operate as a technology company, even though real estate lending is where you're at. But And then perhaps some interest in, hey, can we use this product and pay you guys? So that could be another revenue stream opportunity right there. So now you talked about the cost commitment delivering value iteratively. Obviously, you can't just kind of go leadership and say, hey, we're going to build this for you and it's going to take us a year or a year and a half and then we'll come back to you when it's done. So obviously, you want to deliver value in an agile way. Talk to us about the cost commitment. How did you mitigate that risk? Or I should say, maybe how did you mitigate that huge explosion of cost that people tend to shy away from because they leaders are like, hey, that's like going to cost us millions of dollars to build something like that. How did you overcome that challenge? 
Yeah, so in kind of multiple ways, you know, one is having an excellent team and obviously keeping it very focused on the processes you're trying to build. So, but the real way is what I talked about earlier, which is just what you said, iterative improvements to the platform. So showing value all the way through. So yes, I might come in and say this platform is going to cost $5 million to build overall, but you're not paying the $5 million up front. You're going to see the business benefit as you transition through the product. So I mentioned even starting as something as simple as a pipeline management and a customer relationship, and then you kind of kind of build into it. So we didn't attack, for example, our underwriting and credit decisioning platform out of the gate. So we continue to improve the Excel, which actually worked out for us because as we improved their Excel operations and understood better what they were doing, we not only were able to improve those Excel spreadsheets and those models for them, but it actually built the base for what we were going to ultimately build into the application. So my team got educated on the process, but they got improvements all the way through. So we really just built it as a, just what you said, an innovative, iterative process where we weren't trying to jump to Z day one. We weren't trying to disrupt everything in one fell swoop. We were disrupting individual processes with an overall architecture. So I'll give you an analogy is everybody works on their house. DIY your house. I'm going to fix up my bedroom. I'm going to fix up the right. What this would be akin to is having an architect come in and design your perfect house and then break that up into chunks, either by room or however you want to do it. And you would build out those chunks, but always geared toward the ultimate perfect house that you wanted to build. So we architected that decision, broke it up to chunks, and then funded those pieces as we delivered them. So it was never this overwhelming, you know, we need $5 million today. We need $100,000 here. We need $200,000 here. And quite frankly, it was it helped two ways. One, the business continued to improve through our improvements and increase their revenue. So that was the business case there. And then as you increased revenue and showed what you could deliver and demonstrated it, the board and the management got more and more on board with the ultimate vision, which was, hey, we can accomplish that and we can do it. And so that's exactly what happened is as the ball continued to grow, we continued to build out the platform. And ultimately now we have an end-to-end platform that manages the entire process for us and we continue to build on it. But always with an eye toward, are we seeing the revenue gains? Are we seeing the productivity improvements that we expected to see as we prove it? So for example, early on in the process, we brought on for closing staff. So closing staff for us are the people that actually handle the paperwork, make sure the loan documents are filled out, make sure everything comes in that needs it, right? They do a lot of administrative type work. So we had four of those folks funding 10 loan time. After we put the platform in, one of them had resigned to go career, continue on their career in different areas. And those three continue to do three times the work that the four were doing by using the platform. So I say it, it's a really silly statement. I get made fun of, but We were really designing the platform up front to eliminate the manual administrative dumb work that people have to do every day. They shouldn't have to do that and use those resources to be more analytical about what they're doing and more managerial. And it worked out perfectly. So that was the key for us is demonstrating that we were getting the revenue increases and the productivity gains throughout the process and then hitting each one of those areas that were most impactful for those two pieces all the way through. That's what we were doing. One of the critical factors in in a build situation is team. And you, I don't know how, talk to us about how quickly you were able to build teams, perhaps outsource certain things with partners. How did you bring them on board? Walk us through how you built this build team for Sabal. 
Yeah, I would love to say, I would love to sit here and talk how great I am. I've been fortunate in my career to always have outstanding people around me, very smart people. It was no difference at Sabal. Several of the engineers and stuff that I've been building the platform with were actually here before I got here, but they had never built a product before, especially like this. So education, mentorship, that kind of stuff was doing it. But you're absolutely right. We augmented that team with offshore resources on different areas of the product as we needed them. It really came down to giving a lot of folks out there are very good at what they do. You got to give them some rope. You got to let them do what they do well. And so what I do in my teams is make sure it's a business first mentality. So even though they might be a software engineer or UI, UX design person or a QA person, it was very important to me that they understood the business, what we did for a living, what the business people did in their job. So in my career, I've even, when I joined companies, I've made it a point to go and actually sit and work in the different roles throughout the company. So I've been, for example, one of the retail companies I went for, I spent a day as a concierge at the front desk, answering customer questions, that sort of stuff. So it was the same with my team. I put them in those business roles for a short time so they really could start to appreciate what those people were going through and getting their jobs done and what they needed. And so we do that periodically. So bringing that team in to have that business first core and then making us somewhat of a consultancy. So again, you mentioned kind of the maybe sell our technology. I really did build, and I do in every company, I build the technology group to be somewhat of their own company that's servicing the internal customer. So that's what we're doing. Everybody in Sabal is an internal customer to us. We might not charge them an invoice, but we get paid. So it's the same thing. So I made that core. And then we brought in outside experts, as you mentioned, where we might not have had that skill set, which helped them ramp up in those skill sets, whether it be optical character recognition technology or React or Angular or some of the other frameworks that we might not have had enough skill in. We would bring in those offshores, help them build a piece of the puzzle, integrate that into the platform, and then take it over. And so every one of those offshore teams have come and exited on schedule, on budget, if not below. And now we own that platform and we've been very careful with the QA so we don't have to spend a lot of time supporting it. The code works. We don't introduce things that don't work. And so that agile methodology coupled with making sure we had high quality has allowed us to continue on that process without losing my staff back to supporting the application, supporting the application, supporting the application. That really helped. Matt, you may sounding somewhat like a unicorn <laughs> in being able to uh, <laughs> deliver successfully with offshore team. I'd like to hear some of your secrets. If you can share what contributed to the success of delivering this build through offshore teams. Maybe as a follow-up, I'll also ask what to look out for when choosing offshore teams, how to vet them. Yeah, I don't mean to sound like a unicorn. You know, I've been, again, fortunate to have a lot of folks in my career that have helped influence decisions I've made and have had some really good partners that really were well more skilled in the offshore team specifically than I was. And I've learned from them. I think everybody knows that's listening is the offshore equation has really changed over the years. So I tell this story a lot as an analogy. I remember, I won't date myself, but a few years ago, when you used to be able to kind of write some notes in a napkin and send it overseas and you'd get back this unbelievable product with all these bells and whistles and you couldn't believe it. You'd pay almost nothing for it. But then everybody figured that out. And large multinational companies went over there and hired the best talent. So it's very difficult now for a company the size of Sabal to really get beautiful 
excellent, stuff like that. And we found that over time now, you don't hand that napkin anymore. You do detailed specifications, you teach them the product, you take them through it, and you might get 75% of what you asked for, and then you got to iterate, iterate, iterate. And the quality has really dropped. And I think, again, it's not so much that the folks over there are getting bad, but I think, again, the competition has been heavy. And so it's more and more difficult to do it. So I've done different things. I've gone with smaller teams that I felt really could focus on Sabal as a big customer and make sure that they could really deliver. And then I've gone to some that are very large organizations that had a big bench strength so that if we didn't, if one engineer didn't seem to be working out, we could exchange them. But of course, that's just like hiring a new employee. You lose time, you lose money, you lose that education. So we've had to employ multiple strategies um, to keep it moving. And today, right now, we're actually starting to hire more engineers internally again so we can build up our base of business and execution knowledge internally. And we're shying a little away from the offshore although we still use them. So I think you're going to see for us, the offshore is going to become much more specialized. And we're looking for you. Do you know this? And if you know this really well, and can demonstrate it. So we interview our offshore people just like employees. We want to see resumes. We interview them. We give them coding challenges. We're making sure that they're really on board. Same with the project management. It's key to having a solid project management offshore or onshore if possible. A lot of companies now are mixed. But the key is the project management because the developers are great at doing the development, but you really need somebody organized that's really looking out on managing the process, managing the workflow, making sure they're getting through QA and following that. So it's not an easy answer these days with the offshore team. It's definitely some experimentation, I'm talking to your peers, finding out what they were doing. That sort of thing. Another kind of crazy story is I talked to a good friend of mine and said, hey, do you like this team? And he's like, yeah, they're great. They're fantastic. And so we launched with one of their teams and struggled. And I called him up and I said, hey, what was your secret? Because you told me they were great. And he's like, oh, well, we really never use them for that. We only have these two people and this special project manager I didn't want to tell you about because then you would take them. And so even there's competition between us friends. So you have to be careful. But look, I think, you know, it's not just offshore today. Staffing in general is difficult. Finding good people, we hear about the great, I don't know what they're calling it now, the great walkout. I don't know where these people are going or making money, but it's been difficult to find engineers in the specific tech stacks that you're looking for that want to know business. And you know they're always trying to drive into the next technology. So it's just been, I think, universal these days on, on finding staff, whether it's offshore or onshore. But I would encourage you to follow the same policies and procedures you do for hiring somebody into your internal staff. Use those same kind of quality assurance things in hiring an offshore staff. Same kind of tenant, I think, is the right way to go. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the differences between sort of smaller companies, offshore companies, and how they how you get a little more white glove versus bigger ones. Perhaps they have a deeper bench so they can kind of replace engineers if they leave or if they are not performing. So that's a good insight for our listeners. I'm curious, how did you, if somebody wants to go about finding offshore teams, what do you say is the best strategy to find them? Obviously, I'm hoping not Google search, but I'm curious what are some (laughs) strategies? It is not Google search. Uh, We all love Google. But again, finding a good offshore team is a challenge. And so I encourage you to get with IT, CIO, CTO groups, 
meet friends, talk to people. It's key. Again, references in this case, you can never have enough. I've downplayed references over my time because I like the story I just told you. Sometimes you get a great reference. It's not necessarily great for you, but those people will definitely help you identify. I mean, look, I think we're all very familiar with the 40 emails we get every day in our inbox from somebody telling you they have engineers or they've got a great offshore team or whatever. And it's tough because some of those small teams might be good. They're getting started. We all started. We all started out somewhere. So it might be a one or two man shop that actually has some good engineers. But I think if you're just getting out and starting to explore, maybe some of the bigger shops like I've talked about is good because they usually have some process in place. They usually have some project managers in place. They have that bench strength. So if that person doesn't work out for you, you can exchange them. Still difficult because a lot of these companies, they're not just having people sit around. They don't make money by having people sit around. So it still can take time to exchange a resource and get them spun up. But it gives you, again, I think if you're not familiar with that, desire will be go low cost, get the small shop, but you might be better off going as you first start out, getting the bigger shop that can help you kind of get your policies and procedures down and get familiar with that. And if you do that, I think there's a bunch of companies still to look through, but they're pretty well publicized now and you can find them. And But I would definitely encourage you to reach out to peers and other folks about experiences they've had and maybe some recommendations. Great. Well, Matt, thank you. I think we're going to go to the rapid fire session. So where we ask three quick questions and perhaps I'll start with the first one, a significant, a book that you read in the last one year that made some significant changes, perhaps in your life, relationships, maybe your work life, whatever it might be. I'm curious. I'm trying to think of the title of it, but I think it was called The Propaganda. Oof, I don't want to get too political. I'll have to follow up with you on the title, but um, it was a book on how, and it wasn't really specifically government, but it was how people use propaganda to influence decisions in the masses. And it really opened my eyes, especially around marketing. I think I mentioned I, I also run the marketing, but how propaganda today is influencing people. So for example, in a tech stack, for example, you'll get something go viral about some new great language and everybody jumps on it and wants to do it and I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, sometimes it's better to just stay with set tech stacks that work. <laughs> I mentioned we don't want a lot of yep. support. So I'll look up that title, but it was really an interesting book for me and not only how we're influenced through the media, but how the thought process of Americans go through and get changed right or wrong. And so it helped me understand maybe how I could, and I, I don't want to make it sound like propagandize people to convince them, but it made me understand that maybe the filter that people are getting information through, whether it be something you want to change in their process or technology or something in their life, maybe there's a better way to communicate that information to them to get a more positive response. So I thought it was a very interesting book for that. Does the book give any clues into what's behind it? Is it more kind of sales and getting people to buy stuff? What does the book indicate? It gets into a lot of different things about how things are communicated through the media specifically. And yeah, it goes into kind of mind and thought process of how the human mind interprets that and how things go viral very quickly. And we all know it's not necessarily something that's, again, how do I say that? It's not something that's important. We see the, you know, the pop culture that 
seems to overwhelm us with information that I don't care who got a haircut or who happened to break up with this person today. Those are the things that kind of crack me up, but it does go into detail. So it is called The Propaganda Project, and it's written by Phil Williams. And so it's an interesting book, but it does go through some of the mindset. It takes you through some of history, especially in wartime and things like that. We're seeing in Ukraine right now is the battle in the media, what's going on there. So yes, it goes through a variety of examples of how they structure the news or the media or the communication, wherever it's coming from, to influence the way the human mind thinks for maximum effect. So it's got some psychological impact, uh, philosophical impact, technical impact. It's, it's all kind of outlined in his stories. It's A little very bit like the Matrix. <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. Spring is upon us. What's your favorite spring activity? Well, I think I mentioned I live in the mountains of Idaho. So I have favorite activities and I have must-do activities. So the must-do activity I've been working on is cleaning up the property from the winter storms. We're getting the garden ready with irrigation and making sure that all works and laying it out. And uh, we've already started our seed. But my favorite activity in the spring now is I've got a camper. I get on my truck. My truck is really designed for some extreme off-road. And so I look forward to getting back up in the mountains, doing some exploring. Yeah, that's always a good way to enjoy the good weather and enjoy the great outdoors. And Idaho is such a pretty state. So that sounds like a great time. Any recommendations on in Idaho, if somebody were to camp, what are some places that you would recommend? That's a dangerous question because all us Idaho people don't want anybody else coming up here. (laughs) We're already like one of the fastest growing states, but I'm in Colorado, so I know know what you're talking about. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. But all kidding aside, you're absolutely right. Idaho, people don't realize Idaho is a beautiful state and it offers all different terrains. So it just depends on whether you want sand dunes or mountains or trees or desert. We have it all, but the Sawtooth is a big mountain range in Idaho. Very popular, beautiful place. They've got some great whitewater rafting down through there. Many people probably know that area is Sun Valley, Idaho, where a lot of folks go. I think you heard there was even an executive retreat for folks like Zuckerberg and everybody up there at the, in the Sun Valley, but just a beautiful location. But I can tell you, I'm a big forest and mountain guy, so most of northern, so we've got an area up here called the North Fork River. We've got the Clearwater River, so there's a lot of salmon fishing capital of the world and steelhead trout capital of the world. So we got a lot of fishermen coming up here, but there's no shortage of places to go up here. I would definitely encourage people to come explore. That's awesome. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure chatting with you on the podcast and thank you for coming on the Get It In The Mode podcast. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And hopefully the audience gets some tidbits that they might be able to use in their journeys through their careers in life. 